Hello everyone, Al here. Now, for anyone who's been listening to the show since the beginning, what you're about to hear, you probably heard the first time it was released. But anyone who started listening to the show in the last few years, well, as you went back to look through the earlier episodes, you would have found that five of them are missing. Episodes 17, 35, 42, 49, and 71. And this was because a few years ago, I removed them due to a complaint about copyright ownership. Apparently, there was a complaint I had used some copyrighted material in them. Well, what specific material was used? I have no idea. Despite me sending numerous emails to both my hosting site and the company that was complaining, I was never informed of what was the problem, just that there was a problem. Now, without knowing what the issue was, the only way to keep the show on the site is to just have removed those episodes completely. Looking back at them, the one, the one thing I can see so far, I haven't listened to all of them yet, but the one thing I can see so far they all do have in common is a promo for a show that's ended now, Parallel Lines, a DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast, which used the song Radioactive by Imagine Dragons. It's taken me some time, but I finally got off my butt and I'm starting to re-edit these episodes to remove that as well as anything else that possibly could be considered copyright material. Although... As I've finished doing this episode, episode 17, so far the promo is the only thing I heard at all that was on there, so that's probably what it is. But anyway, I'm going to be re-releasing these episodes this year. By the end of the year, everything's going to be in the feed. Of course, in the wrong order, but, you know, hey, you can't have everything. Okay, so here we go. Episode 42, Metamorphosis, Part 1, where we cover the first half, more or less, of Captain Marvel 29 with co-host Brian Zeno. Enjoy. Woohoo, good. Especially since I know you said you were curi- you were interested in doing this one, because it's a whole Captain Marvel Goes Blonde issue. Well, it's it's a very iconic issue. That said, as I was reading it, I will be I will admit to being more than a little um how can I put this kindly? Uh um, underwhelmed? Nonplussed by the goings on and I'm sort of processing it on two levels. There's the, there's the part of me that is actually three levels in a way. Well, there's actually, the part of, hold yeah. on to that then. Cause let's okay. do the intro first and then you can start talking about that part. That, that, that works entirely well for me. Okay. So give a minute. The last thing I will say real quick as prelude before we get to introing it, Yo, um, because of, because of that reaction and I will attempt to articulate it as best I can as we go forward. Um, there, I don't know, like there's bits I have something to say about and there's other bits that I'm not sure if I have something to say about. So feel free to like lead me on, question me, like, you know, feel, feel free to prod me through this episode if need be, because I'm not sure that I'm going to have content for all the stretches. You know what I'm saying? That's okay. That's why there's two of us. Right. Exactly. So I'm just wanted to make you aware of that. And now I have a problem. So intro away. Okay. So pause.
Hello, welcome back to Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano, and give a warm welcome back to my current co-host for tonight, or today, depending on what time of day you're listening to this, Brian Zeno. Hello. So, Hi there. <laughs> so Brian's here, which means you must know what we're talking about. We're talking about Thanos, and more specifically, Bronze Age Thanos and Captain Marvel. Yes. Specifically, Captain Marvel 29. Uh, a, a truly iconic issue. Well, cover. Well, issue. Well, cover. a little both. Well, <laughs> a little both. Exactly. Yes. So we are going to get into our thoughts on that in just a second. Uh, but first, good to have you back, Brian. Glad to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be back. It's good to be talking comics again. And, uh, uh, man, it was fun to revisit this, uh, this particular issue in this time in comics history. Uh, there was a time not too long ago when I was really sort of diving into what I started to think of as the Starlin verse. And then I kind of got away from it, uh, with my typical sort of ADD reading habits, but, um, ooh, look, so spiders. Was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> ooh, image comics. No, ooh, valiant comics. Ooh, um, anyway, the point is, um, so it was good to, it was good to be prodded back into the Starlin verse and the Bronze Age and something really kind of, uh, a real milestone in, in, in Marvel Comics history. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Okay, so we are going to take a short break right here, and I am going to drop in the synopsis to the issue, so that way all of you who have not read it can follow along with our conversation. And then we're going to get to our thoughts about it. Captain Marvel 29. Metamorphosis. Had a cover date of November 1973, an original release date of August 21st, 1973, with a cover price of 20 cents. The writer, penciler, and colorist is Jim Starlin, inker Al Milgram, letterer Tom Warshevsky, editor Roy Thomas, cover art by Jim Starlin and Al Milgram. Marvell finds himself somewhere in space, facing a bizarre-looking entity who says that his life's mission is to destroy Captain Marvel the Warrior. Marvell only has time for a brief flashback before his attention is commanded by this being known as Eon. Eon tells him that Captain Marvel the Warrior must die so that the universe can live. When Marvel asks Eon why, Eon shows him the truth. The truth is that Marvel's real enemies are his own personal demons within. Here, these demons are able to physically attack Marvel. Marvel again asks why Eon is causing this, and Eon tells him because the universe needs a champion. It needs him to be that champion. But first, he must change in order to fulfill this role. First, Eon tells him a story. This story starts in ancient times, at Olympus, where Uranus and his warlike titans fight against Cronus and his more peaceful titans. Finally, Uranus was defeated, and he and his army banished from the Earth. Cronus leaves those still on Earth in peace and has two sons, Zeus and Alars. While doing research into the cosmos, there was an accident, and Cronus's body was destroyed, although he became one with the universe. Not a euphemism, by the way. He actually became a cosmic being. With their father gone, Zeus took control and kicked the Lars off-planet. Wandering through space, a Lars came to Titan and found a ruined civilization there and a lone survivor. A woman named Suisan. They wed 
and restarted the society on Titan, with Alars renaming himself Mentor. We pause in Eon's exposition for a minute to check in on Thanos, who is on Titan and has his father, Mentor, ah, see, and brother, Eros, captive. Using the Cosmic Cube, Thanos attempts to find Captain Marvel. He can find Drax, the controller, and Rick Jones, but cannot find Marvel. Going back to wherever Marvel and Eon are, Eon reveals that Cronus was able to foresee Thanos' coming and that a champion would be needed to stop him. He created Eon for the purpose of raiding that champion. Basically, Eon is Mickey to Captain Marvel's Rocky. However, Captain Marvel is currently a warrior, and what the universe needs is a protector. Eon shows Marvel images of the horrors of war and goes over how some of his battles as a warrior were not for protection at all until Marvel is ready to change. Eon then changes some of Marvel's abilities. He is now cosmically aware and can expand that awareness to sharpen his senses or reflexes, as well as permanently changing his hair from silver to blonde. Marvel then faces the physical form of his demons once again, but this time beats them. Eon then sends him back to Earth, where he switches places with Rick Jones again. He then tells Rick that he had a strange experience, and it has started him to think which is perhaps what he really needed. A World on Fire. An All-Star Squadron podcast. Join your hosts, Billy D. And Herman as we take a deep dive into the seminal DC Comics series created by Roy Thomas and Rich Buckler. We'll be covering the series issue by issue, spotlighting our favorite characters, and talking about the historical tie-ins as well. So join us every month in A World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast. Coming in December 2020 to a podcatcher near you. Okay, we're back. And so now, Brian, before we started the episode, you were saying, reading the issue, you had some thoughts about it before, and then afterwards, you were feeling a little under... I I was saying underwhelmed, but you were saying it was exactly that. No, no, the word I used was nonplussed. And it's it's because I was, was, as I was reading it, it, I was reading it and receiving it and processing it almost on kind of three levels there was the what i would what i guess i would label the reader level where i'm approaching it just as a comic book reader and trying to take it in as a first time reader would have taken it in when it was originally published back in the late summer of 19 what was it 72 73 74 somewhere in there i think 73 73 um when i was 1 year old so far too young to be reading this when it was initially released. But um, that said, uh, so there was that level. And on that level, 
I don't know. I mean, a lot of a lot of world has happened in the intervening 43 years since this was initially published. And a lot of life has happened to me. And so both the world and me as a reader, I don't know that, that this particular issue, for reasons that I'm sure we will discuss, necessarily stands up to the test of time. It's very, I guess that's just my long-winded way of saying it's kind of dated, and I was kind of having a little bit of trouble with that just on the reader level. And then there was the... Um, oh, by the way, it was 73. I just looked okay. it up. Okay, so, so, and then there was the second level was sort of the step-back sort of... Oh, okay, here we go. Here's a good way for me to... For me to um, label the way as I was receiving it. I don't know if you're much a uh, of a wrestling fan, Al. I know I know some. Okay, so do, are you aware of the difference in wrestling fandom between what they call the smarts and the marks? That I don't maybe, I don't know that in, in sounds familiar. In wrestling fandom and in and pro wrestling writing, they Oh wait, I think I, I think I do know, but go on with it, just in case anyone right, else does. Right. They differentiate between the and and less so now that the sort of veil has been sort of torn away by the last ten, fifteen years of of the product. But back in the day, they would talk about the marks who were the people who were watching this thing and thinking it was completely real and just buying into it entirely on that sort of straight level that it was being sold at, you know, oh my god, they just got defeated, it's terrible, you know, how will, whatever. Oh my and god, they, they got kicked out of the, they got kicked out of the Federation by Vince McMahon, how are they going to live? Precisely, and then you have the, so they called those the marks, and then you have the smart fans, who are the people who were aware that it was all scripted, and that um, it was all sort of a business, and and so they would talk about it, and they were still capable of enjoying it. Don't uh, don't think that the smart fans were dismissing it because they knew it wasn't quote-unquote real, but at the same time, they were able to talk about it on a different level as sort of um, storylines, and they knew who the writers, or as they call them in the business, bookers were. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so I'm so now. I, so the first level to which I referred to before, what I used before called the reader level, that would be the mark level. Okay, that's where I'm just sort of receiving it as it is presented to me. And on that level, I'm having a little bit of trouble, given that it was put out in 1973, and now it is 2016, and both I and the world are different. Okay, so on the mark level, on the smart level. That I'm taking it a step up and sort of processing it intellectually, knowing what I do about comics history, about what was going on in the Bronze Age, about what Starlin was all about, is all about as a as a comic book creator, etc., etc., etc. I'm receiving it differently, and on that level, it's really, really interesting. And then on the third level is what I consider the podcaster level, where on top of all of those other levels that I'm talking about, I'm having to sort of judge it critically and come up with commentary and reviewage and analysis. And that is what you all are about to be subjected to. So on three, I'm sort of processing it on three different levels and kind of, I, I'm not sorry I read it, but that said, it was not a 100% satisfying reading experience for me. And we'll get into that, but that, that's my headline there. My okay. long winded headline <laughs> I, I can understand that and yeah there's a few different i can't i didn't articulate as well in my head the different levels i'm reading it at but it's definitely i agree with you and like there's different levels to read it i mean for one thing you just read it as a story uh you also have to read it and you know you kind of look at it in the context of the era it's in because 
It's a Bronze Age comic. You can't read a Bronze Age comic with 100% modern sensibility and expect it to work. It's a right. very different animal. It'd be the same thing as if I was reading a Silver Age book. You exactly. have to get the proper mindset. You know, you can still enjoy them. You, there's not, not saying that they're horror, you know, they're just crap and garbage, but you can't go, you know, have yourself in a hundred percent modern mindset and then go pick up an issue of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen <laughs> and get the same thing out of it. In fact, I was listening to a show, John Wilson, who, if you listen to the show, you should know that name. Yes, as I've, hello, John. Cause I he was do- podcast with him again soon. Hopefully. But he was on, he's on a sh- doing a show with somebody called Giant Superman Podcast where they go over the uh, Giant Superman annuals that came out in the mid sixties, which like each one was just a reprint of uh, you know several reprints of Superman issues from like several years before. Okay. And also wasn't really an annual because they would have two or three come out a year. <laughs> but but they felt like annual. Well, yeah. Today you and I would understand as an annual. Yeah, but I mean, they're called annuals, but they come out like multiple times, you know, like three of them will come out in a new year, as opposed to once a year, which is a little amusing. But yeah, like, and they were saying, like, you, you, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane are more like sitcoms. It's Superman as a sitcom. If you could read it in that mindset, they're enjoyable. If you try and read them as, even as a more, as a more serious Silver Age story, like, story, like just regular Superman interaction, it's not really gonna fit. Because, it's more about just, you know, the plot and the uh, quirky hijinks. Yeah, exactly. Now, it also does need to be pointed out, though. You're right. You do need to get into a slightly different mindset to read this, given that it is a Bronze Age uh, comic. But that said, even by the standards of the Bronze Age, this one is unusual. Well, yes, this is definitely <laughs> what I guess you could call a progressive one. And this is definitely... Starlin's comic DNA is all over. Yes. Because yeah. I've read a lot of, bunch of different Starlin like things that he's done, especially, uh, indie stuff. I can't remember all of them. I remember one called Word, the Reluctant Warrior. Okay. And I could so see how that came from this. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this is probably for me, this is Starlin at his Starliniest. If. <laughs> <laughs> if if I can coin a phrase, kind of um, like that one page from a few issues ago where they kind of did like we we it had like the whole big page of like it was like a whole page spread but all different panels and all different weird things. It was like an alien half out and there was a car driving by Las Vegas and like you look through it all and you could see like we talked about there was the origin of the destroyer was hidden in there. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and and, and like also. Yeah. But and and yeah, but what you're talking about is you're right. His DNA is all over this. It's, it's it's as though all of those subversive, idiosyncratic, uniquely Starlin notions that he's been subtly wedging into the comics he's been writing and drawing ever since Iron Man fifty five. Like here was the one where they where he finally lets it all just flower fully. Oh yeah, this is first time. He puts it all out there. And this is, there's also, I'm reading this issue, there's a lot of stuff that ties, maybe not majorly, but it ties into so much of the Marvel Universe. I mean, we have the introduction of Eon. Mm hmm. That's true. Which is a big thing. The full, full page introduction of Eon. Oh yeah. Eon's been, Eon's been whispering into the, into Cap's mind for a couple of issues now. Yeah, but this is the first full Eon actually interacting. We also have a lot of, I mean, Beyond Kirby, this is, although I think this actually came, uh, this is like the first time anyone's done, you know, a big thing with the Eternals. Yeah. 
And actually, yeah. I think this is actually before Kirby was came back to Marvel to do the Eternals. So actually, these were retroactively decided to become the Eternals. Yeah, I, I, it's funny because you just said the Eternals and I started scrolling through it saying to myself, did I miss the Eternals? Where were the Eternals in this? Because I've read Kirby's The Eternals and I didn't yeah. see them anywhere in this. But you're right. I guess retroactively, all of the stuff in this about uh, Uranus and... Kronos and the Titans and Mentor, I guess retroactively, Zeus sort of in becomes here, Eternus. Because Zeus in here is actually Zorus from the Eternals, which I believe is one of the Kirby creations. Oh, that's this is not the Zeus that we would have met in Thor, because I'm sitting here thinking he's working the 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 Olympian mythology from Thor into this so this would yes. be the same zeus who hangs out with pluto and hercules initially and that bunch at this time yes but later on and i forget exactly how it worked but i do have it in my brain because one of those early comics that you randomly get from people was an issue of a uh, handbook of the marvel universe which included a section on the eternals and i remember reading that a bunch of times when i was like a 10 11 12 years old mm-hmm. and it, there was some kind of deal that the eternals and the olympians made where like I forget one of them represented the other or did they like they partnered with each other, which is why there was because that was to explain because when Kirby did the Eternals, remember, that wasn't part of the Marvel Universe initially. Right, right. You know, which is why they had that Hulk robot. And they said it's like the Hulk from the comics because <laughs> there was no Hulk. And then later on, they said, no, there is a Hulk. But that's why, like, so many of them seem to, like, resemble, like, the Olympian gods. Right. Because I think right. for no. Kirby's Eternals, they were supposed to have been the the ones humans thought were the gods. He was he was very much working that strange um, um, Eric von Danziger or whatever his name is the uh, the, the chariots of the gods yeah um, stuff. He was very much working that camp Joseph Campbell uh, chariots of the gods archetype notion where you know we the all the gods are actually archetypes that have repeated throughout history so the gods of the incans were the, were really kind of the same as the gods of the greeks were really the same as the gods of the hindus it's just they pre- were presenting themselves differently to different cultures but that's a story for a different time and yeah. we're getting a little ahead of ourselves story wise cuz i'm still staring at this cover <laughs> oh yeah but okay, so let's go. Yeah, we'll go, we'll touch back on that a little bit. But just real quick to finish that off. But that's why, like, in the Eternals, you have Zorus, mm-hmm. Zeus, Athena, mm-hmm. Athena, Makari, Mercury. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. for Kirby's Eternals. But yeah, when we get to the Eternals again, we'll go back. We'll go back to them. But yeah, so we got the cover of Captain Marvel flying at us with, of course, Starlin's universe behind him, planets, stars, novas, comets. I mean, flame bursts and. Yeah. Uh, weird webs of smoke or gas. Yeah, they say yeah. space is vast, but you I, I I don't know. If I have to choose, I have to admit, if I have to choose between going into, well, I mean, real space, of course, yeah, I'll take it. But I mean, if you tell me, give me real space or I can actually go into Starlin space, I think I'd rather go to Starlin's because there's a lot more going on in a small area than there is in the real universe. No, you're absolutely true. It's actually funny. And there's actually a, a panel or two in this particular issue where that actually created an unintentional comedic effect for me personally. But you're right. As we see it here on this cover, it just makes us think that under Starlin and Kirby, at least, space is a really crowded place. 
And stuff happens. And stuff happens. Oh. Now, my only, the only two things I have to say about the cover here is like, yes, as you described it, this is a very iconic image. Um, when this is used on the cover of many Captain Marvel collections and retrospectives, and it is sort of a defining image for the character. And also, I do have to say, just on a purely personal level, when I started reading comics, really, um, uh, under my own steam in 1985, by which point Marvel had already gone to the classic corner box and M-shaped uh, in price box. Yes. Um, so when I get to read these, you know, 70s and early 80s issues with the Marvel Comics group banner across the top, and it, 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 it sort of. I don't know. It, it gives me kind of sort of warm fuzzies because it's, although it predates my beginning, it always feels like so right to look at just Marvel Comics group right yeah. there at the top of the cover. And I love that. So I agree with you. No, trust me. I feel the exact same way. I mean, my actual starting of book reading other things on my own and like go, not just reading them, but going out and buying new ones as opposed to just hoping somebody would randomly give me one. Exactly. Was yes. 80, I have to say 87. Right. Because I know one of the earliest ones I got was the last issue of Fall of the Mutants from X-Men, so I know that was 87, so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, but like, so, so I'm roughly in the same time period you were, but still, yeah, these Bronze Age ones, I do get that feeling, especially like, not just seeing Marvel Comics group at the top, but when you see like that freeform, not in a, stuck in a corner box, but just a freeform image of like one of the characters, or the main character just on the cover. Right, exactly, exactly. Like it's here you just... got Captain Marvel or Fantastic Four, you would have like the torch flying or the thing. Just standing exactly. there on the cover there in the little, like in the box area, but there's no box around him. He's like, I'm free. I could go anywhere I want. Yes, he's unboxed. Captain Marvel unboxed. <laughs> and they are here. So this would be interesting for people to see the first time. I'm, I wonder if how many people will actually pick this up who are reading it. Hey, they miscolored his hair. He's blonde here. I know. But actually, the bit about this that strikes me the most is the little blurb. They, you know, it's. It's look, it's Captain Marvel. It's very iconic and clearly they're selling. He's blonde. It's, it's a spoiler. It's a big change in this uh, issue. His hair turns blonde. There is a reason for that, which is why they say big change on the cover. Right. But that's the thing is that so so they're selling that and fine. You know, it's all cosmic and it's the most cosmic superhero of all. OK, that's good. Don't dare miss the big change in Marvel in the thriller we call Metamorphosis. OK, fine. And then just almost at random, not even in a box, just sitting like right next to him in space. There's a little thing going. He's coming your way. And yeah. it's, <laughs> that's such an odd little thing to have happening on this cover given everything else that's going on it's just that's what my eye is immediately drawn to well you know marvel especially this time they like you know they they couldn't just have a silent cover they even if there was no words on you know word balloons they had to have a couple because i mean you have two boxes with mm-hmm. you know and then that other little he's coming your way all with exclamation points right right because the other one is the most cosmic superhero of all like they're you know anything to get somebody to pick it up yeah, no, I'm, it's just, I don't know, it just, it seems so superfluous and yet weirdly charming for all that. He's coming your way. I mean, <laughs> the only thing they need, the only thing they're missing to be perfect Bronze Age Marvel is mm-hmm. to say, Captain Marvel, as you like him, fighting. Yeah, I know, right. Uh, drama. Um, <laughs> something else. You, some, something along the lines of you asked for it, you know, yeah. or, or, or all, or any iteration of in the mighty Marvel manner. <laughs> yeah, the only thing that beats that I think is the Kirby's from uh, 
when he was in DC doing New Gods is don't ask, just buy it. No, that's true. Or hey, I remember uh, when when he started out uh, when he went to DC at first and he started out on um, Jimmy Olsen, uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. They actually said on the cover, Kirby is here. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Exactly. Oh, by the way, having read up those Kirby Jimmy Olsen issues, mm-hmm. I will say there are like two or three writers, you know, writer pet slash writer, you know, creators who have done him cool. Mm-hmm. Kirby is one of them. Kirby okay. Jimmy Olsen is badass and cool. He is. He is because he takes no shit from Superman. He takes no like, shit from anybody. <laughs> he is not. God, gee, golly, Willikers. He's like, you know, get the hell out of my way. Yeah, I got, I got, I got a story to write. I got stuff to do. <laughs> you know, him and like think James Robinson, maybe one of the person have actually made Jimmy pretty cool. Okay. So, okay. So we just mentioned that. Anyway, so into metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. Beware, hero. It's time for a metamorphosis. And of course, we have Marvel facing Eon as Eon tells him, like he said at the end of the last issue, I, to save the universe, I must destroy Captain Marvel, the warrior. Uh huh. And it's so funny because tr- he's trying so hard here to sell, you know, he's being very careful to say, destroy Captain Marvel, the warrior. Yes. But he's, you can tell, he's really trying to sell the, the first time reader audience that Eon is saying, destroy Captain Marvel. You know, it's like, it, it, it's actually a very well done misdirect, but once you know, like, the, the, the quote unquote trick behind it, it's it's so neat to watch like how meticulous he is about always saying destroy Captain Marvel the warrior. <laughs> oh yeah, well like the end of last issue where that that's how the cliffhanger is, and mm-hmm. you never read it mm-hmm. before. You're like, well, what's going on here? Who is this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but since we know, of course, what how that goes, you know, it's like reading Thunderbolts one all over again. Now that you've read the, you know, now that you know what the tri- you know the plot the end of it is, you're just looking for all the clues. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um. Ian, I do have to say, Ian is a fascinating design. Um, yeah, this, I mean, He's every this time weird tree thing with hair, with hair, <laughs> and like an eye and a and like a, a masked face coming right. out at different points, and then weird like ectoplasmic hands. Yes, and also right. So it's he's. But the funny thing about Eon is also the way that the, the eyeball and the face seem to each represent separate parts of what appears to be a split personality. Like, you know, because in, in the tease, tease scenes in the prior issues that were leading up to this, He's he talking was to talking himself. to himself. And it's like the face was talking to the eyeball and vice versa. So Eon is like this gestalt creature almost. It's, it's very odd. Um, and very striking and i will i'll 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 give it to starlin in eon he really created something bizarre like like strikingly memorably bizarre and if there's anything that sums up this issue and this whole run on captain marvel for starlin it's that it was strikingly memorably bizarre yeah. And plus, also, I mean, later on this issue, you'll see Eon in different shapes. They're mm-hmm. still, like, you can see how they're taken from, like, the face or the eyeball, mostly. Mm-hmm. But, like, Eon has, because, like, most of my Eon reading has come from reading Quasar, where he was a regular supporting character. Was he Quasar? Really? Oh, I yeah. Can... For the first I mean, 20 weird. issues. 
it's weird to me because looking at Eon here and realizing what a a cosmic and eternal type character he is, um, to hear you say that Eon had a regular supporting role in any book is rather like hearing you say that I don't know the Living Tribunal <laughs> or 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 Eternity had regular. Uh, supporting roles in a book. It's like, those are always special occasions, sort of one-off characters well, I, used for big effect. And that was sort of the level at which I was thinking of Eon here. Well, two things. One, I actually would say that maybe not Living Tribunal, but definitely Eternity was almost, I would say, a semi-regular appearances in Warlock and the Infinity Watch. Okay. Also, which I, did, which which, I have not read yet. Which is also Starlin written. Mm-hmm. But... The reason, because remember, Quasar was the Captain Marvel's successor as protector of the universe. Okay, okay. Yes, and that's actually, true. That's, and actually, I remember that. His main specific thing was that Eon predicted that there was going to be an assa- cosmic assassin out to kill Eon. So, unlike a lot of times in these stories where they go, oh, okay, well, I'm going to go away over here and look for them. I'm sure you'll be fine on your own. You know, Quasar's like, okay, well, you're coming back with, you're staying nearby so I can keep an eye on you. Okay. So Eon was kind of like near Earth and like located in like a little subspace type thing, like where, you know, lo- you know, where Quasar could get to him through his, like the closet at his office or something. But yeah, Eon, so Eon was like a semi, was like a more or less regular, you know, cast member for e- for Quasar for like the first year and a half, two years of his book. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, but so far, this issue is really my only exposure to him. So I only have to go. Uh, I only have this introductory impression to go on, and my introductory impression is freaky. Yeah. Oh, but the reason I was saying that was because in those issues, from what I remember, Eon just keeps this basic main, you know, tree-looking shape. We okay. I never really saw him doing taking the other forms that Starlin has him take here. Sort of uh, uh, abandoned and forgotten. Yeah, as it were. like Eon never has feet, and you see him walking in d- different scenes. Uh, here's another great sort of, I've, I've, uh, turning the page to page two, another sort of great Bronze Age convention, if you will, which is the narration talking to the hero. Yes, like the third person, uh, I think it was called third person on the potent area or something like second, that. Second, second, I think, or something. But it's like, yes, Captain Marvel, how, why do you now find yourself far from where you should be? Think back. You know, and it's, it's like, it's addressing him. Yeah. And that's just such a very Bronze Age thing. Oh, yeah. And, and of course, it also gives you, it gives a reason for the, Recap page exactly, and a nice a nice rationale for a little bit of a a little bit of what has gone before. Although they don't really waste too much time with recap, it's only like half the page really is the recap. No, that's it's only it's really only three uh three uh, panels. Yeah, there we 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 are reminded he was fighting the controller at Avengers Mansion. The fight basically collapsed the the mansion, or at least a part of the mansion. At which point he inconveniently swapped places with Rick Jones and finds himself here with Harry Tree Guy. Yeah, and so of course he's saying um, the Captain Marvel, the warrior must die so the universe may live. Mm-hmm. And then I will explain it all to you now. And but not quite right now ish, but kind of. Yes. <laughs> And now we get to the next page, and this, like I said, is the beginning of, like, Starlin stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, inter- internal strife 
internal demons, whatever you want to call it, internal conflict, mm-hmm. but shown as external. You know, take, made, made physical, taken physical form and put outside of your body so you can actually physically fight your own demons. No, and I'm, just struggle with it. You know, it's like for, for someone who's like, let's say, I'm just think I'm not trying to make light of this for anybody, but like, I'm thinking now from this time period, Iron Man. So it wouldn't just be him struggling with the desire to drink. He would actually have something, a version of himself, a drunk version of himself to fight. Right, to right. To beat his alcoholism. Well, and also just in this on this page and also extrapolating out to the whole issue, this is very much something derived from the time. Something really groundbreaking, I think, at the time. But, you know, in the wake of the Vietnam War... And, you know, all of the talk in society about war and violence and crime. And, you know, these were the days of gritty New York and, and, oh, yeah. and gritty, gritty Times Square. And, of course, New York is where Marvel Comics were made for the most part. Um, when I read, uh, man, I seem to be unable to do a podcast without name checking the book. But it was just it was so informative that I really can't uh, go without uh, giving a shout out to Sean Howe and Marvel Comics: The Untold Story for how unbelievably informative it was. As I a need that, I resource. think you really do. It's one of the most fascinating. As a comic book fan, it's one of the most fascinating inside stories I've ever read. But anyway, the point is they made a point about how a lot of these guys, Starlin and Engelhart and Milgram, and you know when they were young and they were you know starting out in the early to mid seventies when they were starting out doing work for hire for Marvel, they would go around, walk around New York City together and and they drop acid together and they would visit these strange places together and it's just very much a zeitgeist of the times so you read this issue and you can really hear someone, you know, some dude with the sideburns and the mustache looking all early 70s you know, and you can hear them saying dude, the real conflict is within, man you know it's, you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah and you and got you, Gerber in that start, in that thing too. It's Gerber, Gerber, exactly. Like he was set. <laughs> so my point being that 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 so here you're really getting a truly concentrated dose of this someone who's trying to to tell a story about not just a superhero punching a villain. He is making a concerted and not a hundred percent successful, but still he's making a concerted effort to bring, to give form and give comic book narrative life to this sort of sense that I think a lot of people were having in the 70s of of finding oneself and trying to tame human nature and not just reaching out and punching an enemy or a villain. Yeah, they were just starting to explore how to do that. Kind of like, similar vein, I think, to when you and I and John were talking about the Avengers Defenders War, how we were discussing about uh, Mantis. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. their version, like, how they thought the way her powers worked was kind of like I said, it looked like their thoughts of how, you know, Eastern mysticism and martial arts could work. They thought, right. you know, where you could control your body like that and you know, do these semi-mystical things. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of, that's what this seems like to me. And like you said, they're trying to do this new thing, which you said is not just, and trying to do not just a story that's about internal stuff and not just a superhero punching out a villain, and yet still trying to do it in a book that's about a superhero punching a villain. Right, exactly. And that leads to this weird 
that's why I sort of said it wasn't 100% successful, because you do get these sort of weird dissonances in the effect, but we'll get to that when we get to those pages. Yeah. So, but like um, I said, this I, is Starlin. Like this is Starlin's DNA because this it, so much of his stuff, especially his indie personal stuff, comes mm-hmm. from this. Mm-hmm. You read this and then you read that stuff. You go, oh yeah, that could you could make a sh- almost a straight through line of this is how it became. <laughs> now here's the funny thing uh, for me. We're here on page um, three, I believe it is. Um, uh, I'm I'm as we do this podcast. I'm reading it on Marvel Unlimited, which does not number them. So. Um, I was guessing. Anyway, my point is, for this page, the most striking image for me, both from a narrative sense and from a visual sense, is panel five, um, which is where one of these, um, as Eon calls them, ravagers, but they're really just internal personal demons given form. Yes. One of the ravagers has his hand on, on Captain Marvel's face, and Marvel is presented as all sort of purplish gray with red eyes and like the lighting is very otherworldly and psychedelic and dramatic and he's just shouting this is insane why is this happening why and i'm thinking this is this panel exists partially it's starlin like trying just every panel is starlin trying to present to the reader this sort of trippy mental this is the mindscape man this isn't just you know this isn't another planet this isn't our reality man this is the mindscape this is inside thing this is inside me this is inside you so the so the so the unrealistic coloring and don't forget that starlin was credited as the writer art a penciler and colorist on this issue so these color choices are definitely deliberate oh yeah um it, it, it's all supposed to be very, very it's sort of trippy and psychedelic, but also on top of that, you know, for much of this issue, Captain Marvel just, he's basically just periodically goes, you know, why is this happening? Why are you doing this? Why are you saying this? What is happening? He's, I think Starlin realized that, okay, just sort of stepping back and taking the issue as a whole, you've already given the synopsis, so it's not like I'm yeah, spoiling anything. That's why I do, that's why I do that this way. That way, so, everyone knows what's so, going on. We can talk about whatever we want. Right, so stepping back and taking it as a whole, it's really just a giant psychedelic mental info dump on Eon's part. And I think Starlin realized that from a narrative perspective, especially a commercial comic book narrative, you know, that has to sell perspective, I think he realized how, what, what, what dangers there were inherent in that. And he didn't want the title character of the book and the putative hero of the book, Captain Marvel, to spend an entire issue just sort of sitting back and, getting um, therapy and, and, and <laughs> receiving all of this bizarre information from this newly introduced character. And so I think it's funny because like every few panels, like clockwork, he will just shout out, why? What is happening? Why is this happening? And I think that's just to keep him present as an active enough participant in the story to justify putting his name on the cover. Oh, yeah, because most of this is really, he, he really does nothing. Right, right. Where am I? The Voyager cast. Who are you? The second in command. What do you want? 
to cover every iteration of Star Trek. I will not watch Voyager, Enterprise, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, or Discovery. My life is my own. By hook or by crook, you will. I am not a prisoner of your podcast whims. All right, you want to do the prisoner? All right, then. The Village People, an exploration of the prison. With Paul Spataro, Dave Pascarella, Bill Robinson, and Andrew Lamb. Actually, I was just thinking about it. It's funny what I say, because it, it is kind of like Marvel getting therapy. And obviously, you could, back here at 73, you couldn't really do just that. And yet, almost well, almost exactly, it probably was 20 years later, in 93, didn't they have that issue of X-Factor, which is considered like one of the greatest mar- issues ever, of uh, the one where they go see Doc Samson? You know, they might have. I haven't read that one. Oh, okay. I stopped reading X-Factor around... 89 and 90. Or maybe it might have been a few years earlier because that was 87. Okay. It's one, it's that team of X Factor. And all they do is they go to Doc Sims and he analyzes them all. Oh, interesting. I'll have to look that one up. Yeah. Plus, you get a reason you actually get to understand why Quicksilver is such a dick. (laughs) And it makes you understand why he's a dick. And it makes you actually kind of sympathetic for why he's a dick. But he's still a dick. Oh, he's still a dick, but you can 100% agree with him. Even if you don't agree with him being a dick, you can under, like, you were like, if that was me, I I would be a dick too. Interesting. Now, that had to be a little later on because that sounds, that sounds fun. One of the things that made me stop reading X Factor was the fact that as I grew older, Louise Simonson's writing became less and less satisfying to me, especially. You you left earlier. This was Peter David. That's what I'm saying. That sounds much better than Louise Simonson's writing, and that she was still writing it when I stopped reading it. Then you left earlier because she left around uh, 60, 61, 59. Yeah, I wasn't reading at that point. It was it was by the time. Here's all I know about like, and and this is so not on topic, but uh, all I remember is that by the time of Inferno, I remember reading the tie-in issues of X-Factor for Inferno and realizing that I was just buying those, like I wasn't still reading the book. You know how it is when you used to read a book and then you read just a couple issues later on because they tie into something else you're reading? That was what X-Factor was for me by the time of Inferno. Uh, See, for me, X-Factor, for her writing, and then we'll get back to Marvel, for her writing for X-Factor, was I was still really enjoying it until about, you get to that Judgment Day story, which was like 42 to 50. Mm-hmm. Which involved the Celestials and X Factor and Alien Planet, and that's when it started to drop for me. I, I I think I stuck with it just long enough to see the resolution of all that Cameron Hodge crap, and then I bailed. Yeah. By the way, so back to Marvel. But back to Marvel, yes. It just yeah. That's the problem with these things. Like you go, oh, good, like you know, being psychoanalyzed. Well, they did psychoanalyze. Yes, but that <laughs> so anyway, was later in a completely different book. Yeah. So anyway, so. Eon is now basically, like we said, giving him the info dump, and right. it starts with Olympus. And and the info dump is strangely um, confetti, funfetti like. <laughs> funfetti. <laughs> I'm looking at the at the top at the top of the page where Eon oh, is beaming yeah. this information directly into Captain Marvel's brain. And Captain Marvel actually looks like kind of like he's tripping balls, man. He actually does have yeah, he does have a bit of like a smirk on his face. Yeah. Like he is he does look like he's kind of getting like a ooh, this is kind of cool. Yeah, man. Marvel's like relaxed and groovy here, man. This is good. Yeah. Eon Eon's dropping the good acid on me. Yeah. <laughs> so, Captain Marvel's Jim Starlin and 
I have to assume from things I heard that he might have been maybe he well that he's done enough. So I'm going to assume he was their supplier. And Eon is Steve Gerber. Yes, yes, yes. I have no reason to believe that Steve Gerber was the guy buying it. I don't want to impute his name. I love Steve Gerber, but I know I've read enough stuff to know that Steve Gerber definitely did do that stuff. So I'm just going to assume that he was on saying, "Here, dude, yeah, I got it. Don't worry." Yeah, yeah. So um. So anyway, yeah, so it goes to Olympus, and we have Uranus and his titans fighting against more peaceful titans like Cronus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And eventually Uranus is defeated. Yes. And, and they kick him off planet. Cause and they kick him off. And, and not seen here, the uh, the Amazons of Themyscira. <laughs> Actually, I was thinking, I'm this, I'm like, so Uranus is kicked off to Apocalypse. Well, yes. my father here. <laughs> yeah, right, right, man, yeah. Yeah, um, but, but like I said before, later on, this would be retconned, just to tie in with the rest of the Marvel Universe, that, the, like I said, these are the Titan, these are the Eternals, mm-hmm. and they are connected, they were like, the ones that stayed on Earth were affiliated with the Greek gods, because you see, Cronus has many children, and I'm assuming many wives, and we see mm-hmm. these two of them, and it says Zeus, but actually would be changed later to Zorus, which is the one that Kirby created, but they were tied together. Because Zeus never had a brother named Atlars. Yeah, Alars. Well, because by the time Alars, that's right. It's an L, not a T. But but by the time, uh, because by the time, as as we learn here, by the time the Eternals was being um, um, promulgated on the Marvel universe, Alars had already cacked off to Titan and renamed himself Mentor. Yes, because we see here we get the origin of Cronus, who Mm -hmm. is definitely a character who stuck around in a lot of cosmic stuff, not just Captain Marvel. But yeah, mm-hmm. he gets destroyed, but kind of like a, you know, Captain Adam or uh, Dr. Manhattan type of way. Yeah, it's exploded. I was thinking Dr. Manhattan. He becomes the fabric of the universe in a way. Well, that was actually the original Cap- the Silver Age Captain Adam's origin as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, he's very, you know, like, because remember, Dr. Manhattan was Captain Adam. That's true. That's true. He so was. It was basically the same origin. It was just Alan Moore tw- doing his own tweaks on it, but that's the same origin. Except instead of Cronus forming a body again, he's like, nah, I'm cool. But that's still that's cosmic. very, very trippy and psychedelic. Yeah. Yeah. His, his body is exploded and his mind is spent out across the galaxy. And to this day, Cronus still pops up as like one of the major cosmic forces. Okay. Like okay. eternity, like eternity, and love, and the living tribunal, and exactly, um, yeah, order and chaos, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So, Zora, Zeus, or Zorus kicks Alars off Earth, and he mm-hmm. goes to wander, and he ends up on what we find out to be Titan, and yep. he meets a girl named Su- an alien girl named Sui San, and I like this. The, let's see, one, two, three, four. Panel seven of that page where he's leaving Earth. Mm-hmm. But Alars looked upon her and her world and thought much could be done with both. Yes, and we look topless except for like a bikini, fur bikini bottom. I'm like, Alars, you per, Alars, you yes. dog. He's like, well, I could do something with you, half naked hot chick. I could do lo- I could do much with her. And do not forget, this is the man and apparently woman who would soon give birth to Eros, the uh, the rapist Avenger. So. <laughs> It's not his fault. That's his power. It's a natural. It's not like That's you can a, blame him. It's not like he uses it. But, but yeah, this is this is awfully. Um, I'm looking here at panel seven and eight. You know where we see Suisan. I have to wonder if there was someone beloved in uh, 
Starlin's life named Susan because it just looks so much like Susan. Oh, but, of course, uh, yeah, it has Su- to be. Suisan here, you know, who's very, let's face it, for by, by standards of 1973 Comics Code Authority approved comic, this woman is very topless and very sexy in oh, these yes. two panels. And, and the whole, you know, this is, this is John Carter of Titan, basically. Come on. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, that's definitely a very much a Deja Thoris type look right there for her. Mm-hmm. Now, a quick aside, it, it's not in here, but since we're never going to cover, probably never going to cover those issues that involve that, and I thought it was interesting, I'm just going to throw it in. Uranus ends up going to Uranus, mm-hmm. the planet. Mm-hmm. And actually, his, him and his followers go there, and then most of them leave, except for a few. The few that stay there, by the way, or stay involved a bit with there's also an alien race that lives there, and those are the people, those Eternals, are the ones who contact uh, Robert Grayson's father in Germany in the 40s, who, and he, they help him come to Uranus from Earth, and his son comes back as the 1950s character Marvel Boy, who originally uh-huh. had the quantum bands, and then later on would die, and Quasar would get the quantum bands, and then Marvel Boy Robert Grayson would come back to life, I forget how, for the uh, Agents of Atlas series. All right. So, I did not know any of that. Yeah, I, I got off the Marvel Wiki. <laughs> also, so, but the ones who left, because like I said, only a few of them stayed on there. They left and were the one. The other ones left and basically were kind of decimated in a battle with the Kree. Sui San was one of them. Oh wow! So she okay. actually was initially a follower of Uranus. So, but she survived and I guess long she went, enough to hook up with LRs. Yeah, I, I just thought that was kind of cool. It's like, oh, it kind of t- still ties in. Like I said, there's all these little things. Like, it's not huge, important stuff, but it kind of like this is kind of like the thing we were talking about before we started the recording of the show, where we were talking about how like the the minor ways that like the Marvel Cinematic Universe tied in with like the movies and the the TV shows and the Netflix shows, where they don't make it huge overt things. Like they don't talk about they don't say when the Avengers fought the aliens. They mm-hmm. say, you know, the incident or the Battle of New York, you right. know, or even like in Daredevil, like the first episode of Daredevil season one, where he's like, the guy didn't have a hammer or a suit of armor. You know, they make alludes to it, but they, it's not a huge thing. That's like here. It's like all these little strands of the Marvel Universe that like it all ties in. And I just I like that, at least, even if it wasn't specific here, you could I, I look at that. You read this and you go, oh, that comes here and that goes here. It's It's a piece of a puzzle and it's very satisfying. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and yet, if, right. and yet none of that stuff was important. You know, had nothing to do with this. It doesn't change <laughs> anything. And that's actually not a bad way of doing that, you know, have that happening. It, had, it doesn't change anything here. It's cool. It's just cool to know, I think. But it doesn't affect the story. <laughs> but, uh... So, anyway, so Marvel's learning about that, and therefore that means that they had ki- they got it on, and they had kids, one of whom was, of course, Thanos. Thanos, this guy. This freaking guy. Finally, who appears in the book, ranting and raving, and he has his father, mentor, and brother, Eros, trapped. Mm-hmm. And how mm-hmm. come every time, while well, he's really selling the Eros thing, because, you know, his mentor is just sitting there with his hand, you know, he's in his that little energy field with his hands together. But Eros looks like he's about to come. True, but actually, if if I if I can undermine your... Um, your <laughs> Delightfully filthy humor there. And, um, I think that's actually a very nice character. Another really nice bit of Starlin using his art 
to delineate character because mentor, as we have established, is a um, hell, even when he was a kid as a, a Lars, that he was a child of scholarly pursuits and teachings of peace. So he, he's very Zen. He's very um, much, you know, uh, um, and this is a theme. This is a theme throughout this issue. And, you know, it's going to get crystallized a, a bit later on. But Mentor has been captured by his worst enemy ever, his own son. He's being held while his son plans his conquest and torment, etc., right in front of him. And Mentor, Mentor's pose, at least his outward facade, is one of peaceful acceptance. Meanwhile, Eros, who's younger, who's more hot-headed, and who, as you point out, by his nature and his power set, is 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 one of more passion to to put it obliquely his his pose is one you know his his back is arched his hands are outflung his pose, his pose is one of more action as though he is straining to break out he is not accepting like mentor is he is straining to break free he is struggling against his bonds and so in that subtle way without needing to put it into so many words Starlin is giving us character, important character information about these two characters just with this drawing. And that right there is fantastic comic booking. And now we have a thing I thought was fun here. I always thought, it was, well, not fun. I actually thought it was interesting where Thanos is talking about how there are others who he says has no hope of stopping him, but still they might be a pain that has to be dealt with. Yes. And in panel three, this Thanos is funny. I have to assume Thanos is trying to be sarcastic. Okay. The most dangerous is the strangely savage and subtle destroyer. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that word subtle means what you think it means. No, you're right. I do not think, I don't know why it's there. You're absolutely right, because he, frankly, I don't think Thanos is trying to be sarcastic. I do not think his character has been developed to the point where he has sarcasm yet. That does come later. This is just the, I don't, I think at this point, if, if, if I had to venture a guess as to why that strange word is in that strange place, I have to think it's just at this point. I mean, look, you go back to the credits and they credit here in this issue uh, Roy Thomas as the editor. But given the free reign and the run of the of, of his own uh, mythos that Starlin appears to be being afforded in these issues of Captain Marvel later in Warlock, it seems to me that when under Roy Thomas, at least when when Starlin wanted to just run and and create these weird corners of the Marvel Universe wholesale, they just let him run with it. So at this point, I don't think there's a lot of editorial oversight going on. And as we've pointed out before, this is Starlin. It is Starliniest. This is, you know, very much the full flowering of his idiosyncratic and unique personal concepts. So I think at this point, six, seven pages into the issue, he was just in, in, in the flow of it. He was, he was running with it. He had himself a good flow and the word just sort of plopped out and he left it there. But yeah, even though he's not the brain dead destroyer that would pop back up, you know, come back in the nineties. Right. This right. destroyer is still not subtle. He's smart. No. He's intelligent, but he is not subtle. 
No, he's kind of monomaniacal. I must destroy Thanos. Well, yeah. how are you going to do that by destroying Thanos? What? I have one goal, and that is to destroy Thanos. Okay. Hey, Drax, want to get some pizza? Does it destroy Thanos? <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. This pizza will destroy Thanos if we eat it. Because he, he, he does not like anchovies. They bother his stomach. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know what I'd say though what you said about Roy Thomas actually makes sense I have to, uh, and actually I was just thinking about it and I would think assume that actually Roy Thomas was probably a very hands off editor because later on when he goes to work for DC and do All-Star Squadron and Infinity Inc I believe now someone could correct me if I'm wrong but I'm pretty certain he was writer editor of those books Right, And I know, like, for instance, when he was doing at least the parts of se- halves of the Secret Origin issues he was doing, when that book started coming out, he was, like, the writer-editor for that. Right. So for somebody who's into, you know, either you're going to be an editor, and therefore when you're writing, you're like, okay, go, here's my stuff for my editor now, because that's the editor's job. Or if you're the writer-editor yourself, you're probably going to go with the, yeah, I'm just going to make sure it's right, you know, you got stuff on time, and that's it, but I'm not going to check what you're doing because you're doing your book mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. as long as you're not doing anything crazy like murdering captain america or something like that we're and all that's, good that's exactly what i'm thinking i'm thinking much like today i mean i have uh, just to step back and make a slightly larger uh context point here um i've been saying for the last couple of years i'm very pleased right now with the state of comic books. I'm as big a comic book fan as I've ever been. Clearly, I'm doing this podcast, right? Yes. Yeah, I felt like uh, them a little bit, I guess. Well, right. But I'm saying right now, I think comics are as good as they've ever been. And one of the causes of that, in my opinion, is the freedom that creators have to put their own personalities into the books we're writing. We're living in a day and age where, uh, just as an example, Marvel can put out um, something as traditional um, as, uh, say, all new, all different Avengers um, uh, or whatever. But at the same time, something as idiosyncratic as, say, Met Fraction's run on Hawkeye. Yes. Or as um, or, or uh, Ryan North and Erica Henderson's uh, Squirrel Girl. Um, and, you know, I'm sure the same thing is going on over at, uh, uh, DC in certain ways. You know, I, I, for, just as a, for instance, uh, Black Canary, that is a very idiosyncratic book going on over at DC right now. My point being, I get the sense, you know, and that hasn't always been the case. Um, there have been, you know, many times over the last, you know, couple of decades when editorial oversight and enforcement of a, of a, um, uh, s- uh, synchronized brand was, was really, uh, uh, strongly done and, and put forth. So, but I'm looking at this, I think just to get to tie it all back to what we were talking about. You're right. I think Roy Thomas was very hands off. I think they liked that, 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 Starlin stuff wasn't anything like say what was going on over in the Fantastic Four, the amazing Spider-Man. Starlin's stuff was weird and it was idiosyncratic and it was very much him. And I think you're right. I think Thomas was just keeping enough of an eye on this book to make sure that Starlin wasn't, you know, say killing off a character that they had a use for in another book 
or, you know, overtly contradicting something they had going on somewhere else. And as long as he wasn't doing that or crossing any other obvious comics code lines. Hey, I damn, think, you can't do this all orgy issue. Seriously. No, no. <laughs> exactly. That, other than that, I think they just let him go. And I think that is how you wind up with a panel like Thanos calling the destroyer settled, yeah. which WTF. Yeah. But also probably how you get stuff like Starlin feeling creative enough to probably not feel constrained that you get something like the next page. Okay. Which yes. I like a lot. I mean, if you're not looking at it, it's a page. It has technically seven panels. You have three, pa- you have uh, two rows of three panels and the mm-hmm. first three rows straight down from top to bottom is about to, it has the controller with, uh, Rick Jones' girlfriend, Luann. Right. And the next three panels are going down are Rick Jones in the Avengers Mansion. And rubble. Then, yeah, in the rubble. And then next to them, like on a, its own panel, but without borders, kind of showing, I guess, his cosmic nick now, is Thanos' face kind of like overseeing both events. Right. It's, it's very interesting because by giving, um, by making Thanos. And I guess this is why uh, Starlin decided to do, to do the coloring as well as the penciling, because with Thanos' face here, it's done in blue ink, which, you know, back in 73, that would not have been easy to pull off. You know, it was very a very regimented process whereby, you know, you would have the penciler and then the inker would lay down blacks, and only then would the colorist go in. But by making himself the color penciler, he's was able to render this Thanos face in that pure light blue there um, as a sort of almost background to the page. And he very subtly, again, good comic booking, good use of form and, and, and meta uh, 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 levels to convey story information in a way other than the like purely straightforward. And so here you're right. We get the controller with Luann. We get Rick Jones in the rubble. But by putting Thanos' face off to the side of the background with these other panels uh, playing out on top of it, he very much gives us the impression almost effortlessly that these scenes are being seen by Thanos in his mind from afar. And that's very effective. Very cool. Yeah, and also I'm looking at it, and you could read this page virtually any way. You could read it as a traditional comic panel, as a traditional comic page. The top three, because like I mean, even though Thanos is all one panel, he has a word balloon on the top right in conjunct, matching up with the top two panels, and a word balloon on the bottom matching with the lot, the bottom two panels. So you could read it as a traditional comic page: the top three, the middle two, and then the bottom three. Right. And it works. Or you can read each one straight down. Right. Or you can even read the two the two panels back and forth, back and forth, and whatever, you know, of the two events happening, and then Thanos. Yeah. And, like, either way, it works. He's breaking down form and, and, and using it not, not just to make something that is visually different, but really as another tool of storytelling and this is this is unusual i mean okay let's let's just give credit where credit is due the bronze age broke with a lot of the conventions of the silver age and often when talking about silver age we talk about the way there's almost never a panel of just art on its own art was always accompanied by dialogue or narration what the art was hap- was hap- showing in the art 
And there was a lot of redundancy between what was seen and what was said. So they got away from that somewhat with the Bronze Age. But here you can see, uh, the, 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 in this case, Starlin, but he couldn't have been the only one. You really can see the, the artists and the storytellers straining to use the unique aspects of the comic book medium in different ways to convey story information in different ways. And I am just, as, as, as a lifelong comics enthusiast, when I become aware of stuff like this in ways that works, in ways that, that aren't just stunts calling attention to themselves, but that were really effective and that are, you know, working the way the creator intended, that just gets me all jazzed. I love that. Yeah, I have to say, I love this page, and I think that Thanos image is just, um, I love it. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that image of Thanos. That's just like, this page, like I said, this is just so showing the Bronze Age of, like, we are going to try something new. Mm-hmm. We are working on stuff. It's time to cover our feedback again, and this time feedback is for episode 178, Frenzy on a Faraway World. That was part one of our missing episodes in which we brought back Missing Episode number 17, with co-host John M. Wilson. On Facebook, the posts about that episode got likes and shares from Joe Sedano, J. David Weeder, Clinton Robinson, Derek William Crabb, Bill Baer, Darren Sutherland, and Ruth Sutherland. On Twitter, we got likes and retweets from David Finn, Anti-Wife Equation, Viet Nguyen, Alan Sharp, Capes and Lunatics Podcast Network, The Bat Pod, Jason Snick Venable, Doc Strange, Chris Lydon, Dave's Comic Hero Blog, Bill, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, and JohnReadsComics.com. All right, you want to hear more from me, you can hear me pretty much every week on the L-E-G-I-O-N-P-O-D-Cast. You can find that on the Legion of Substitute Podcasters feed, links in the show notes. And on that show, we talk about the late 80s, early 90s DC Comics sci-fi series, Legion. That is the Legion with the acronym and Viral Docs and Lobo in it not Legion of Superheroes. Also, I guest starred recently on a show. Go, go to the Magazines and Monsters feed, again, links in the show notes, and look for one of their Bronze Age of Horror Comics episodes, the one feature, featuring Werewolf by Night 16 and 17, where Billy Dean and I talked about, well, Werewolf by Night 16 and 17. Okay, if you have comments you want to say, questions or things about the episode, or if you just want to be able to like and share the posts about this episode so you can have your name said, perfectly fine. Email. Send me an email, please. I would love to have an email. Resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. Facebook. Just go on Facebook and type in the search box, Adam Warlock or Thanos, and our page will pop up. And we are on Twitter, well, for now, <laughs> at AdamThanosPod. All right, at the beginning of the episode, before the music... I had put in a little pre-introduction explaining what was going on with this whole missing episode thing. Just want to give you an update for this specific episode. So, we did eventually cover the comics that cover the retcon, where Mentor, Thanos, and the other Titans went from being related to the Greek gods to being Eternals. Go to episode 111, where you can hear Brian Zeno and I talk about Eternals, secrets in the Marvel Universe. Also... If you want to hear the coverage of the rest of this issue, because remember, we only did half this issue. So go listen to episode 43, where Brian and I finished talking about the rest of Captain Marvel 29. Now, in that pre-introduction before, I mentioned the five episodes that were missing. And the first three were 17, 35, and 42. 
This last one was 17. This one's 42. So you might have noticed we skipped 35. That's because the audio for that really wasn't that great, I found out. And it was just a one-off episode talking about this just talking about the Superman Shazam Return of Black Adam DVD. It'd be nice to have on back on here, but it's not that important. There's no Adam or Thanos related stuff, so we'll live without it. But just wanted to let you know. Alright, and we're going to finish off our feedback the way we always do by reminding you this show is part of The Collective. The Collective was started by a few like-minded podcasters who wanted to network in the most traditional sense. It has become a repository for ideas, crossovers, and potential guest appearances, and you're going to hear a promo for one of the other Collective shows right now. I am Connor from the House of L. And I am Ray from the House of Zod. We are two of the many, many survivors of Krypton's destruction, and we have made our home in Australia, and dare I say have become Australians, for better or worse. But we have also decided to read Superman comics, read Superman books, watch Superman shows, cartoons, movies, basically everything Superman, and from an Australian perspective as well. Whether you're a seasoned fan, like me... Or whether you are coming in fresh, wide-eyed and wanting to learn more like me, then this podcast is for you. Join us for our bi-weekly adventures available on all good podcast catches. So just search for Last Sons of Krypton, a Superman podcast. We'll be coming to you from Australia or some cosmic dimension, wherever we are, that week. Up, 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 up and, and away! away. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended, or happening, or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peacelovproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page. He is not a brain. <coughs> Sorry. Don't die. Please no. don't know we're done. <coughs> Sorry. That's Choke. okay. I'm good. Okay. okay. Carry on.